This is Backstory. In 1967, Senator Fred Harris asked African Americans in a handful of northern cities how things were going between them and their white neighbors. Things were so segregated in these cities that they didn't see any white people at all, except the police. How much police represent the communities they're serving has long been a sensitive issue. It's part of the reason, in fact, that Americans were slow to create police departments in the first place. But in the 1840s, authorities decided that a standing police force was better than the alternative. At one point, they're actually firing cannon at each other down the streets of Philadelphia. Today on the show, the police and the policed, from a time when politicians exchanged police jobs for votes to the era of autonomous cops that were too shielded from oversight. In the middle of the night, people started being dragged out of their beds. A history of the police, Major funding for Backstory is provided by the Shia Khan Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory with the American History Guys. Welcome to the show. I'm Peter Onuf here with Brian Ballow. Hey there, Peter. And it airs. Hey. We're going to start today by talking with a pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. His name is Thabiti Anya Bwile. Anya Bwile. Anya Bwile. Nobody calls me that, by the way. Uh, so, <laughs> so at best, I'm Pastor Thabiti, and lots of folks would just call me Pastor T. When he was growing up in Lexington, North Carolina in the 1970s, Pastor T used to daydream about what he was going to be when he grew up. And my mom would pretty much always say, you can be anything you want to be in the world, uh, including president of the United States. And I don't know that I believe the president bit, but (laughs) I I got the point. (laughs) (laughs) And so one day, one morning, I said to my mother, I want to be a police officer. And my mother's face turned to marble, and uh, she looked at me, and her voice dropped a couple of octaves, and she says, you will not be a police officer. And I was taken aback and asked why. And her comment to me was, I will not have you locking up our people. And that was the end of the conversation and the end of any daydreaming uh, about becoming a police officer. And of course, what she was beginning to introduce me to was a long narrative, a long history of tension, conflict, mistrust, mistreatment um, between the police and African-American communities. That history was, in part, uh, a family history. A generation earlier, Pastor T's grandfather had come home from World War II only to be greeted by a throng of Klan members. When stories were told of cross burnings and things of that sort, you know, part of that story would be not just that the Klan burned a cross or rode through at night, uh, but part of that story would be you couldn't get any support from the police officers, or in fact, many of the police officers were themselves Klansmen. But that reflexive mistrust of police officers is not simply a product of family lore. These types of stories have been told by countless African Americans going back many, many generations. 
if we look at the longer history of African-American engagement with police forces in this country, whether that's police forces returning runaway slaves or whether that's police forces enforcing segregation, one could understand the African-American sojourn here as in part living in a police state. Pastor T has children of his own now, two teenage daughters and a nine-year-old son. And so we couldn't help asking him what he would say to his own kids now if they told him they wanted to join the force. Would he discourage them as his mother had discouraged him? That's a really good question. No, I don't think I would tell him that. So I don't think I would pass on my mother's counsel. We can't ever hope for our institutions to continue to grow and to get better unless we send good people into them. I think the calling to be a police officer uh, is as much a calling as is the calling to be a pastor. They are as much servants of God. And so I don't think I would discourage him uh, from from that if that's what he felt like he wanted to give his life to. Um, I think I'd do my best to encourage him and help him to be wise in that. This summer, Americans have witnessed a series of disturbing events exacerbating tensions between police and the communities they serve. In July, police shootings of unarmed black men in Louisiana and Minnesota sparked protests across several cities. That week, a gunman fatally shot five police officers during a peaceful rally in Dallas, and three more police officers were killed in Baton Rouge later that month. Most recently, on August 13th, tensions in Milwaukee boiled over after a black man was fatally shot by police. These tragic events prompted us to revisit an episode we ran back in 2014, when the shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, thrust these issues into the national spotlight. Today, we'll explore how efforts to clean up corruption in the Los Angeles Police Department in the 1950s ended up putting officers above the law. We'll hear what happened when a group of senators told the nation that police were to blame for the riots in the 1960s. And we'll look at the reasons that police departments were created in the first place. A hint? It wasn't to fight crime. Over the past few years, many Americans have noticed a stark racial disparity between police and the people they're policing. When Michael Brown was shot two years ago, only four of Ferguson's 53 police officers were African-Americans. And that's in a town that was two-thirds black. There are a lot of explanations for this disparity, but what's clear is that it represents a real departure from the way a series of minority groups used to become police. For immigrants in the 19th century, it basically amounted to a patronage system. You give me a job on the police force, and in exchange, I'll help turn out my fellow countrymen to vote for you in the next election. And I'll do that again and again if you need it. If you're talking about the Irish of the 1840s, they are displacing over time German immigrants of an earlier generation. This is historian Khalil Gibran Muhammad. If you're talking about Southern Italians of the 1890s and the turn of the 20th century, they're vying for spots against a very entrenched Irish immigrant and Irish-American police force. So depending on where you are in your American journey depends on how quickly one can ascend to the ranks of the men in blue. 
It was in this way that a succession of immigrant groups, groups that at first were thought of as being especially prone to criminality, effectively shed that reputation, moving into positions of political and economic power eventually. Those uniforms represented an arrival, so to speak, for the community of being fully incorporated or Americanized or even assimilated to to this country. They were able to essentially decriminalize their own community by virtue of both representing law and order when necessary, but also um, demonstrating that the state itself cared about them and the social contract. What happens when African-Americans begin moving north in large numbers, let's say, during World War I or surge during World War II? Do they have those same opportunities to become police officers? They did uh, over time, but their options were far fewer, meaning that the number of slots on any given police force, uh, New York City, for example, had a very small number. In fact, so small a number in the beginning, uh, single digits. And uh, these were truly token opportunities. Um, More interestingly, they were usually attached to the increasing presence of African-Americans or uh, Caribbean immigrants in particular neighborhoods. So if you look across the country at the turn of the 20th century or even in the Great Migration period in the North, you'll see that most black officers are only policing the black community, which also further limited their options. Uh, To a degree, that was true for other European immigrants as well, but those barriers to policing beyond uh, the ethnic ghetto fell much quicker than they did for the black one. Why? Well, because black police officers outside of the South in particular, um, it was not socially acceptable for them to police white communities. Uh, So regardless of their rank or title, they were generally restricted to only policing the black community. But in those instances where African-Americans were uh, police officers in their own communities, did that alchemy work in a similar fashion? It didn't work because black people were only policing black people. But going back to the mixed communities of European immigrants, if you're an Italian-American or an Italian immigrant and you're in a heterogeneous population of Irish and Jews and Polish Catholics and others, whatever stigma was attached to your particular subgroup eventually sheds because people get to know you as Officer Kelly or I like to joke, or Officer Giuliani, right? (laughs) So this is, you know, the Irish and the Italian bookend to the process of not seeing the particular European nationality as particularly threatening. Not for nothing, Ray Kelly represents a tradition of Irish Americans, the former commissioner of police here, and Rudolph Giuliani represents a tradition as a chief law enforcement officer, as a former federal attorney of Italian-American succession. But... In outside of the South and across the North and West of this country, you you still, you've never had a heyday of ethnic succession following black people into uh, our police forces. Um, They are to this day overwhelmingly white, even though in our inner cities, in our urban communities, the population um, is not nearly as white as are the police forces. 
Well, I want to drill down into that, Khalil. I was listening to uh, cable news. I don't even remember which channel. And um, I heard a pundit uh, talk about there not being black police officers in Ferguson because there wasn't a tradition of policing in the black community. How would you respond to that fellow? I think when we talk about tradition, we can document with great evidence, tremendous optimism and interest in participating in all forms of civil society, Mm -hmm. including policing. And that these were always perceived to be jobs for people who had good hearts and were committed to their own upward mobility. And so African-Americans have always pursued these jobs commensurate with their own American dream aspirations. And it's only in the midst of the last 30 or 40 years in the wake of the great disappointments of economic and social mobility since the civil rights movement that we can introduce this variable of community distrust of policing. It's not to say that African-Americans didn't distrust policing at the turn of the 20th century, but they did so far less today because they could imagine a world without segregation prior to the civil rights movement. The problem you have now is we live in a post-civil rights moment, and it's really kind of hard to imagine, well, what what does America look like um, without this new form of Jim Crow, as Michelle Alexander um, frames it? So all I'm suggesting is that perhaps there is something to be said about less enthusiasm among 15- and 17-year-olds for joining police forces given policies like stop and frisk. Mm -hmm. But that's not representative of a tradition. That's representative of the contemporary realities of discriminatory and abusive policing in black communities. Khalil Gibran Muhammad is the director of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture at the New York Public Library. He's the author of The Condemnation of Blackness, Race, Crime, and the Making of Modern Urban America. Let's consider a time not so long ago when there was no such thing as the police in America. Crime was kept in check by a hodgepodge of constables, sheriffs, urban night watches, and most importantly, snoopy neighbors. But it wasn't an increase in crime that led to the development of the first police forces. It was civil unrest. In the years following the American Revolution, Protests by men in the lower echelons of society were a standard feature of the social landscape. Elites tolerated them, sort of the way you'd tolerate bad weather. The Boston Tea Party, after all, was still pretty fresh in people's memories. Protests still had a patriotic, a democratic ring to it. But in the late 1830s, the nation's steadily growing economy went bust. More bust than it had ever gone before. It was America's first Great Depression. Suddenly, protests by people in the poorer classes took on a different, more threatening cast. And in Philadelphia in 1844, those protests boiled over into bloodshed. 
Well, it was essentially a tension between Catholics and Protestants, immigrants and native-born Americans. This is Alice Dare Roberts, a professor of public affairs at the University of Missouri. And that tension, I suppose, was always in the background, but it was managed in economic good times. But when the economy went south, uh, everything began to deteriorate very badly and turned into a full-scale conflict that the authorities tried to intervene and put down, and eventually they did. The city was uh, eventually put under martial law. Well, tell us a little bit about what uh, kind of capacity for maintaining order a city like Philadelphia would have had at that time. Yeah, it would have been primitive. Uh, there was no such thing as a municipal police force in the modern sense mm, in, right. in any uh, major American city at the time. And so essentially, if a riot got out of hand, the sheriff might try to uh, put together a posse, mm -hmm. but that was tough to do. And then if things got really out of hand, you would call in the uh, army or cavalry to put things down. Right. So in effect, uh, uh, there's a kind of a war going on in Philadelphia. At least that's the way frightened officials are seeing it. Well, that's precisely what was happening at the worst moments of 1844, the uh, the army is called in, they're bringing in artillery, they're bringing in cavalry, the, the rioters themselves are bringing up cannon from the ships in the port, and at one point they're actually firing uh, cannon at each other down the streets of Philadelphia. Wow. And, uh, and one of the upshots was that Philadelphia began to realize there had to be a better way of maintaining order in the city. And a lot of other American cities watching Philadelphia or dealing with their own protests began to realize that they needed to find a better way to control dissent as well. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about the formation of police departments that uh, seem to set a precedent for our modern understanding of what police do. Well, they, actually, Britain in the 1820s and 1830s had been going through a roughly similar phenomenon. Mm -hmm. uh, industrialization was going full speed, a lot of unrest among people who were losing their jobs because of the introduction of new techniques or losing their jobs because of periodic economic crashes. Yeah. Uh, so London, the London authorities in uh, the mid-1830s establish the first police force. And interestingly, they don't do it to control crime. They're doing it to maintain public order, to control protests. Mm -hmm. The uh, American municipal authorities basically say, okay, we're, we're going to take a page from the British here. We're going to establish a municipal police force, uh, a civic army, as it were. Mm -hmm. And we're going to use that in place of the military to uh, anticipate uh, unrest and maintain order. So... Uh why was this expedient of turning to a professionalized civic army, why was that such a momentous turn in the history of policing? We sort of take that for granted now. Our police are in uniforms. They're well-armed, maybe too well-armed. But uh, that would have seemed to many American observers in the uh, early 19th century to be a violation of fundamental American principles. Right. And as you say, the phrase they were using at the time was a civic army. We need to build a civic army as opposed to the, the conventional army. And mm. there'd been a lot of resistance to that for a combination of practical and ideological reasons. Uh, mm -hmm. The first was it seemed like a very anti-democratic thing to do. Right, right. Here's a country that's just uh, freed itself from uh, the empire. It's committed to the notion of self-rule. Mm -hmm. And to, to some degree, the idea is you don't need a police force to discipline the people because the people ought to be able to discipline themselves. 
Um, the, the critical point is that I think in the earliest phases, there was a certain degree of elite sympathy for what mobs were doing. Mm. And of course, mm-hmm. by the 1830s, 1840s, the tone is beginning to change. Yeah, the story you tell is one of increasing capacity of police authorities to maintain order. Uh, could you give us the, the big picture of how that capacity has changed over time? And in some ways, this is a reflection of the changing character of uh, American society generally. Well, that's right. So the premise is that the free market economy can be a roller coaster uh, in good times. No one's worried about managing disorder, but in bad mm-hmm. times, things can go very bad and government has to develop the capability for dealing with unrest. And they do it uh, in a couple of different ways. They they expand their policing capabilities. They improve their doctrines on how to deal with unrest. They upgrade their equipment. They tighten the law about the time, place, and manner in which protests can happen. They even start to redesign urban space in such a way that it's easier to control unrest when it does break out. And this is a recurrent phenomenon. So, you know, if you thought that the great thing about the free market is that it can basically operate itself, the answer is that's not right. (laughs) No, not exactly. Uh, And one of the ways in which that's not right is that you have to have the policing capabilities to deal with the unrest that will inevitably come during slumps in a free market economy. Alistair Roberts is a professor of public affairs at the University of Missouri and author of The End of Protest, How Free Market Capitalism Learned to Control Dissent. You know, Ed, Peter, I think that when you look at the history of policing in America and the relationship to the community, say, police, you've got to factor in technology. I'm sure you've noticed that today the debate is over body cameras. You know, some argue that body cameras will hold the police accountable. And those in the police, at least some say, yeah, we want body cameras because that's going to stop all of these false charges of police using excessive force. I think when we look back through history, most of the major changes in the way police related to communities really came through some kind of technological change. And I'll just throw out a specific example. The walkie-talkie, two-way radio, we take it for granted today, but really up until the middle of the century, police were on their own. They kind of had to develop a relationship with the neighborhood around them. They had very little centralized control. But with the advent of those two-way radios, Central Command knew exactly where those police officers were. They could send them in different places and combined with another crucial technology, cars, uh, they sent them anywhere they want. That bond between the police officer and the community that he or she policed was really broken. So, Brian, when was that? Well, Like all technology, you can mark it by the first time it was used in the 1930s in Boston or by when it became really prevalent, which in many ways was not until the 1960s and 1970s, even in larger cities. 
Speaking of time, Ed, why don't we put Peter on the spot and like find out how technology was used in policing back in the early days of the Republic? Did they well, have technology in ye olde days, Peter? Well, Brian, let me tell you, this accountability business cuts two ways. In some ways, what you're describing, making the police more responsive to central authority, well, that makes the police more like the military, it seems to me. Yeah. Uh, that makes the police on the beat uh, part of a an organized force, thinking of the police collectively and able to deploy that force. Uh, and when the police emerge in America, it's in opposition to a tradition of uh, community self-governance. It's in opposition to a day watch and night watch of of people who are patrolling the neighborhoods who are members of the neighborhood who aren't responsible for anybody except in the kind of ad hoc way in which any Republican citizen is responsible for the public good. And when you talk about people in uniforms, you talk about people who are following the command of a uh, central authority, you're talking about a standing army, or huh. as they called it in the antebellum decades in the 40s and the 50s, a civic army. Uh, that is now not part of the neighborhood, not part of the city. So, Peter, what you're saying is that the technology is the police itself. The, the yeah, idea, you're right, Ed. Right? Exactly. It's a uniform. It's a bureaucracy. Uh, it's a, an identity distinct from the people that it's actually policing. Yeah, it's like a machine. Uh, the, the individual policemen are are not autonomous, self-acting individuals. Yeah, they're, they're interchangeable agents. parts. You got it. So, Peter, let's put Ed on the spot and talk about those machines. And I mean real machines, not human technology, even though Ed makes a great point there. Ed, what kind of technology changed the relationship between police and those policed uh, in the 19th century? You know, once you get the civic army that Peter talked about in place, it's a natural inclination for them to adopt all kinds of technology. And so the 19th century just seems the adoption of one new kind of machine after another. Uh, guns in the 1850s yeah. uh, begin mm -hmm. to spread, but also photography, which, as you can imagine, is a lot better than a, some sketch or a verbal description of somebody. And then during the Civil War, handcuffs, 1862, and then 1877, Telegraph. Hold on, hold on. How'd they use the telegraph in policing? Well, before you have a telegraph or a telephone or a radio, if you're a criminal, just skipping town is a pretty effective yeah. strategy, yeah. right? There's nobody's going to be able to catch you somewhere else. And so you would see uh, in newspapers, they'll report, police received a telegraph today that... Uh, Suspicious characters are coming down the river, you know, from Memphis to Natchez, whatever. Stay on the lookout. Uh -huh, and and yeah. around the turn of the century, they come up with a, an especially important technology that's especially suited to this work, and that's the fingerprint. And once you start having fingerprints, you're being able to scrutinize, surveil things that you we can't even see. It strikes me that this is a, a real watershed in the way that police operate. Ed, I think you've put your finger on it. Uh, and, you know, we started we started with cameras and how they might hold the police accountable. And you've now ended with fingerprints and how the police are surveilling us down to our literal fingerprints, and that will turn into DNA. 
and so with this two-way relationship, technology being used to hold the police accountable on the one hand, but to surveil us on the other, where do you guys come down well, on the current I, situation with cameras? Seems to me that we've come back to the uh, early period in which we have total surveillance all the time. There are no secrets. Everything's transparent. You know, the real tension today, it seems to me, is in our notion of rights, uh, privacy rights, not to be seen. And if we have total transparency on both sides, well, maybe that'll stop rogue cops from misbehaving. But what happens to us? What happens to the kinds of rights and, and personal liberties that we cherish when we are always exposed? Peter, you know, you raise such a fundamental point. But I would say in instances where individuals carry the power to make life or death decisions in a split second, as police officers do, then surveillance of them and giving up a little of our privacy in the process is well worth it. Yeah, and I think too, Brian, we shouldn't discount the rights of the community to uh, safety, to predictability, and uh, the rights of the community to make sure that its agents, the people it pays to serve in maintaining social order don't abuse that power. So we as citizens want that kind of surveillance of those who conduct surveillance. Uh, that's checks and balances. That's fundamental to our system. In the early decades of the 20th century, the Los Angeles Police Department was known as one of the most corrupt in the nation. Cops there operated at the behest of underworld mobsters, of political bosses, and of the Chamber of Commerce, who used the force to break up unions and other so-called subversive organizations. The city really did look like something out of a noir film. In the four years between 1919 and 1923, eight police chiefs came and went, all taken down by scandals. It was a pattern that continued into the 1940s. But in 1950, a new police chief came to power, and he was determined to clean the place up. Our producer, Nina Ernest, has the story. Each week at this point in our program, On the Beat, we bring to our microphone a special guest. Tonight, we are especially proud to present the new chief executive of the Los Angeles Police Department, Chief of Police William H. Parker. He was an intimidating, cold SOB. This is John Bunton, who wrote a biography of Parker. Consider this. One of Parker's former speechwriters, Gene Roddenberry, went on to create a little show called Star Trek. And it turns out that steely Dr. Spock is, in part, based on Parker. But envision a Spock who was also an alcoholic. Cerebral, cold, intense, formidable. Vulcan tendencies aside, Parker was seen as an upstanding cop. 
He was a war hero and veteran officer who developed the department's first Bureau of Internal Affairs, investigating all manner of police misconduct. He had the reputation of being incorruptible. This is historian Edward Escobar. And of having very precise ideas of how policing should work. And those precise ideas were around the issue of professionalism. Police professionalism didn't begin with Parker, but he was a standout warrior for the cause. Beginning in the 1920s, reformers came to believe that the way to root out corrupt cops was to treat policing like a profession, as something respectable. So in Parker's mind, fighting crime required just as much expertise as becoming a lawyer or a doctor. And Parker and the police professionalism movement believed that they needed to be the sole arbiters of who became a police officer and who should discipline police officers if they stepped out of bounds. To stop corruption in the force, Parker had to make sure that cops, and cops alone, controlled the department. But there's more to the story of professionalism and the LAPD than just autonomy. One of the, the uh, ideas of being a professional, say, now let's turn to medicine for a second, is that you have to have a theory of what causes illness, what causes disease. Well, in the same way, police had to have an idea of what causes crime and then what they should be doing to, to, to fight crime. And in L.A., That meant focusing their often violent crime-fighting efforts on the city's Mexican-American community. Theories about minorities being prone to criminality still influenced police behavior. By the time Parker took control, the LAPD's tactics in minority neighborhoods had led to tensions between the cops and the people they policed. Those tactics set the scene for what would become a real threat to Parker's prized autonomy. It was Christmas Eve, 1951. That night, two officers were called to the showboat bar on report of underage drinking. So these two officers show up. There are seven people there. The officers ask for some ID. Five of the seven men were Latinos. Two were Anglos. No one's a minor, but instead of leaving the scene, the police officers tell uh, several of the guys to disperse. Police officers brutally tried to throw them out of the bar. A fight ensued. The seven young men overpowered the police officers and left the scene. And then in the middle of the night, the police came for them. You know, 4 a.m. in the morning, people started being dragged out of their beds. That's when six of the young men were taken into custody at the LAPD Central Division, where L.A.'s finest were having a Christmas party. Now, a rumor had spread within the department that the police officers had been badly beaten and that one of them had actually lost a night. That wasn't true. But true or not, the cops wanted revenge. Fueled by anger and copious amounts of alcohol, things got ugly really fast. Remember the scene from L.A. Confidential? Did that actually happen? This is for ours, Poncho. It's estimated that around 50 officers took turns severely beating these young men in their cells. What are you looking at? What are you looking at? You would think that in a professional police department that when something like that occurred, William H. Parker would know about it immediately and start an investigation of what would happen and then would go in and discipline uh, the officers for such a breach of discipline. That did not happen. Instead, the public didn't hear about the case until March, 
When the young men went to trial and told their side of the story, the press dubbed the incident Bloody Christmas. Rumors spread that the mayor would ask for Parker's resignation, and the chief suddenly found his department under the scrutiny of a grand jury investigation. Mexican-American groups and others who had long suffered at the hands of the cops fought to bring the officers and Parker to justice. Critics wanted more civilian oversight of the force, and opponents wanted to revoke the section of the city charter that gave the department independence and personnel issues. What bloody Christmas posed was this problem of brutality and accountability. You know, you have a police chief who wants to free the police department from corruption. Look at Los Angeles's history. That's understandable. But at what point do you also free the department from accountability? Parker fought this threat to autonomy any way he could. He stonewalled the grand jury. He also launched a PR campaign pushing the idea that the police were the thin blue line protecting civilized society from anarchy. And on top of that, Parker had the upper hand in the court of public opinion, thanks in part to this. The wildly popular radio-turned-television show Dragnet started long before Parker took the helm of the LAPD. But he understood the value of good publicity and maintained a very close working relationship with the show. Listen closely, and you'll catch Parker's name in the credits. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. At the same time, the newspapers were putting out this image of the LAPD as a rampaging, brutal, unaccountable organization. You know, people were seeing a very different image of the LAPD. The LAPD as ultra-efficient bureaucratic machine. And, you know, that was a vision that the population of Los Angeles in general was happy to you know, sign off on. In the end, eight officers were indicted for using excessive force, and five were convicted. That was unprecedented in L.A. But Parker kept his job, and no structural changes were made to the police department's autonomous status. Parker tightened his grip on the department, and under his leadership, the LAPD would go on to become a model professional police force. But now, no one was policing that professional force. And Escobar says that left the city's minority communities with very few options in the face of continued mistreatment. The outcomes were the Watts riots of 1965. You have an ongoing simmering conflict between the LAPD and the Black and Mexican-American communities throughout the next decades, culminating, if you will, with the Rodney King beating of the early 1990s and the subsequent riots. This became sort of a cancer that consumed the department from the inside out. It wasn't until the 1999 Rampart scandal involving brutality and the framing of suspects that authorities said enough was enough. After 50 years, it was time to protect this most professional of organizations from its own criminal elements. Nina Ernest is one of our producers. Helping her tell that story was John Bunton and Edward Escobar. 
Bunton is the author of L.A. Noir, The Struggle for the Soul of America's Most Seductive City. Escobar is an historian at Arizona State University. We'll post his article about Bloody Christmas at backstoryradio.org. Toward the end of that piece, Edward Escobar mentioned the Watts Riots of 1965. They were among the most famous riots that swept inner-city America in that period, but they were hardly the only ones. Harlem, Philly, and Rochester in 64, Chicago in 66, and the long, hot summer of 1967 that saw 159 riots tear across the United States. The most devastating were in Newark and Detroit. In five days in Detroit, 43 people were killed, most of them African-American civilians. Fred Harris, a young U.S. senator from Oklahoma, pushed for a congressional commission to investigate the causes of the riots and suggest possible solutions. And then it occurred to me that the president, President Johnson, could, without waiting for legislation, appoint uh, such a commission, and that's what he did. My fellow Americans, I'm tonight appointing a special advisory commission on civil disorders. And uh, just before uh, he was to go on the the air, I was watching it with some friends. I was watching television. Uh, He called me and he said, uh, Fred, I'm going to appoint that uh, commission you've been talking about. And and I said, well, I I think that's a good thing to do. He said, I'm going to put you on it. Its other members will include Fred R. Harris, the senator from Oklahoma, And I said, well, I hadn't expected that, but I'll do the best I can. (laughs) And he said another thing, Fred. And I said, yes, sir, Mr. President. He said, I want you to remember you're a Johnson man. He said, if you forget it, I'll take my pocket knife and cut your blank off. (laughs) He didn't say blank. (laughs) Johnson was warning Harris. The president had a reputation as a civil rights advocate and poverty fighter, and the final report had better reflect that. The commission became known as the Kerner Commission, after the chair, Governor Otto Kerner of Illinois. But it had a more official title. The name of it was the President's National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, and uh, he gave us a charge that involved three questions he wanted us to answer. One was, what happened? Why did it happen? And lastly, what can we do to keep it from happening again and again? We divided up into teams. I was a team with uh, Mayor John Lindsay of New York. Uh, John and I went around the country and visited uh, particular cities where riots had occurred, walked the streets, talked with people, and that gave real uh, substance and put faces on the kinds of things that we heard from the experts. Harris talked with lots of people, including militants and unemployed 20-somethings. He spent a whole day in a Milwaukee barbershop asking customers about the recent unrest. And for those who had grown up someplace in the Deep South, he asked whether they experienced less discrimination up north. And uh, people were puzzled. They didn't know how to respond. What it turned out was, Things were so segregated in these cities that living there in uh, Milwaukee in the black section, they didn't see any white people at all, except the police. And that gets at one of the Kerner Commission's key findings, that despite civil rights progress in the early 1960s, America was still deeply segregated. The most famous line of the report reads, America is moving toward 
two countries, one black, one white, separate and unequal. The report pointed to mass unemployment, dismal schools, and substandard housing in African-American neighborhoods as long-standing causes of anger and resentment. People had a lot of really serious grievances and hostility. And we found that the first level of intensity of a grievance was, number one, police practices. Many people told Harris about being harassed on an almost daily basis by white police officers who lived in other neighborhoods. And residents explained that there was no system for complaining about unfair police practices. And if complaints were made, little or no official action was taken. Hostility was so high in all of these black sections of the cities and uh, of the country where the riots had occurred that almost any random spark would set them off. When the riots did flare up, says Harris, the police went overboard in their response. Law enforcement officials justified their use of live ammunition on the grounds that they were under siege by sniper fire. And before long, you had the National Guard spraying an apartment building, just spraying it with machine gun fire, because somebody said that's where the fire was coming from. The rumors of snipers and outside agitators were fanned by the FBI and relayed to the president in official reports. They portrayed the riots as part of a huge conspiracy orchestrated by leaders of the Black Panther movement. But the Kerner Commission found no evidence of snipers or conspiracy. It concluded that segregation, lack of economic opportunity, and hostile police were plenty cause enough. Identifying the problem as institutional racism was the easy part. But the Kerner Commission also had to make recommendations. And so it called for job creation and integrated housing to break up segregated urban ghettos. As for the police, the commission recommended new hiring practices that would create a more diverse police force accountable to citizen oversight. We said that uh, police in a neighborhood ought to uh, look a lot like the people in the neighborhood. They ought to be a part of the neighborhood. And... We recommended uh, what came to be called community policing, that the police and, and, and other services of government ought to be out there in the community, available to people, and uh, be a part of the community, and that there ought to be grievance mechanisms. Before things get bad, there ought to be a way by which people could feel that if they made some complaint about the police or whatever, it would be uh, taken seriously and acted upon. In its final report, the Kerner Commission did not mince words. Quote, What white Americans have never fully understood, but what the Negro can never forget, is that white society is deeply implicated in the ghetto. White institutions created it, white institutions maintain it, and white society condones it. End quote. Johnson, the president responsible for the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, in the Economic Opportunity Act just a few years before didn't take the report's accusations well. So I had to ask Harris, did you forget you were a Johnson man? <laughs> no, you know, the, a terrible thing uh, happened. We, we think that one member of the commission leaked the report early, and uh, we know from staff and others that Johnson hadn't read the report, but uh, he was told that this report's going to ruin you because it uh, encourages and condones riots 
and it doesn't have a good thing to say about uh, you, about anything you've done in regard to civil rights. All of that was false. Uh, we put a fellow to work on the commission staff putting together a citation in the report to every place where we had said something complimentary of President Johnson. <laughs> and, and, that, and that list came to uh, seven pages, single-spaced, but uh, Johnson never saw that. Johnson refused to meet with the commissioners, and he denied the request for continued investigations. But the National Association of Chiefs of Police were supportive of the commission's work. And in the 1970s, community policing programs began to show up in a lot of American cities. In 1998, 30 years after the report was issued, Harris, now as a professor of political science, co-authored another study. It found that segregation in housing had intensified and African-American unemployment was at crisis levels. The problems haven't changed since then, says Harris, and so the Kerner Commission's recommendations are as relevant as ever. I think a lot of people thought the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act and poverty program and all that, well, we solved all that. But it, 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 it is true that poverty is worse now in America than it was, and uh, we are resegregating, and these grievances are growing up again against the police, and, uh, and, and we're going to see more of this kind of trouble uh, and more of these kind of terrible tragedies as in uh, Ferguson, unless we take interest again in you know, Thomas Jefferson said eternal vigilance is the price of liberty, and it's also uh, the price of a practicing uh, democracy. Fred Harris represented Oklahoma in the U.S. Senate from 1964 to 1973. Today, he's a professor of political science at the University of New Mexico. That's the sound of the police. That's the sound of the beast. That's the sound of the police. That's the sound of the beast. That's going to do it for us today, but we'll be waiting for you online. What are the stories about police that have been passed down in your family? Are you a police officer? And if so, have community relations changed over the course of your career? Let us know at BackstoryRadio.org. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. Today's episode of Backstory was produced by Tony Field, Nina Ernest, Andrew Parsons, Kelly Jones, Emily Charnock, and Robert Armengall. And Jamal Milner is our engineer. We had help from Coley Elhai. Special thanks this week to Galtham Rao, Ed Davis, Michael Holland, Steve Kurtzman, Arnold Sagalin, and listener Tammy Lee. Backstory is produced at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Major support is provided by the Shia Khan Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. And by History Channel, history made every day. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia and the Dorothy Compton Professor at the Miller Center of Public Affairs. Peter Onuf is Professor of History Emeritus at UVA and Senior Research Fellow at Monticello. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus at the University of Richmond. Backstory was created by Andrew Windham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities.
Essa sound era bis. Essa sound era police. Essa sound era bis. Backstory is distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange.